One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, let's play a game. How many four letter words that start with F can you think of? I know the first one that comes to mind, but I don't want the E. FISA. FISA. Farah. Farah. Very good. Mana fort. Fort is a four letter word. <laughs> Bought the farm. Farm, yes. <laughs> he sure did. That's very good. I what literally about? can't think of a single one right now. But Flynn. Too much pressure. That's well, Flynn's not a, a four letter. letter. Word. But well, it's but four the, letters if you spell it the way the president probably would. In a tweet, yeah. <laughs> Mike Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> and all of these people are fuck. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the four-letter words that start with F edition. I'm Shane Harris. That felt like an episode of Sesame Street. It was fun. That was I fun. I enjoyed that game. Okay, but I, since we already have an E rating on half yeah. of our episodes, why didn't you just say it? I don't know. I think, I think now the challenge is I want to avoid the E today. Let's see how far we can get without the other four-letter words. Yeah, okay, let's, let, let, let's have a nice clean... That'll be the, uh, let's play another game. Let's see if we can get through the podcast <laughs> without dropping any expletives. Okay. That's a challenge. I'm going to have to really right. think. Yep. Uh, I can't move forward. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're here in the new Jungle Studio with Susan, Ben, and tomorrow. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Hope everybody had a nice... We're coming to you a little late for uh, this week. Hope everyone had... Who celebrated had a nice holiday. Um, but things did not slow down. No, no. Not. and now Fast. that I'm that's atoned. That's another four-letter word that starts Fast. with F. There you go. And now that I'm atoned yeah. and the record is clean, I, I can offend as many people You're as I want. You're ready to go, baby. <laughs> you should have gotten it all out of <laughs> your system on Tuesday. <laughs> then you go in on Wednesday. You start right over again. <laughs> that really is the lesson to take from this holy day. Uh, on the podcast this week, Paul Manafort pleads guilty and agrees to cooperate in the Russia investigation. And Mike Flynn gets a sentencing date. The Justice Department tells two Chinese media companies to register as a foreign agents under FARA. And Trump declassifies more material about the surveillance of one of his campaign advisors. Um, so let's take Manafort and Flynn together as the first topic, but but let's start with Manafort, um, unless anybody wants to start with Flynn. Uh, but Paul Manafort, uh, I think, well, I don't know if it was surprising no one, but I think there have been a lot of speculation that he might plead to avoid uh, a second trial, and there might be plenty of good reasons why he would do that. Maybe he didn't want to have to pay a million dollars for the legal defense. Uh, there's plenty of good reasons why Bob Mueller might want to just say, hey, uh, two in the hand is worth one in the bush. Is that right? Or is it two in the bush is worth one in the hand? Whatever. Uh, why bother going? I think one in the one hand, in the is, hand worth is worth two, two, in, the two in, the in the bush. He uses metaphors that are much sharper <laughs> See, than mine. I can't mine. count to four with words that start with F, but you can't count <laughs> dead birds. Dead birds. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I'm not running the Russia probe and only covering it. Uh, but he may have said, look, great, plead guilty to basically all the information that we charged you with. Let's call it a day and go home and I'll move on to other things like Roger Stone and Mike Flynn and whoever. Um, but then there is this cooperation agreement. So – Ben, we don't know a lot about what 
the scope of the agreement will be. And Rudy Giuliani, I think, has been out there insisting that, oh, no, Trump's lawyer, we've we've heard from uh, Paul Manafort's lawyers that there's nothing to see here. and They're not going to tell us anything, tell the special counsel anything that would incriminate the president, which I think most people kind of roll their eyes at that presumption. Um, so tell us what you think the significance of the cooperation agreement is. And let's talk a bit about what we think he might have to tell. So I want to suggest that the Manafort plea agreement, the Flynn sentencing and Bob Woodward's – the last chapter of Woodward's book all should be looked at together Um, and specifically that they uh, point in very different directions. So normally you would look at the Paul Manafort plea agreement and you would say, Wow, there's a cooperation agreement attached. He's the campaign chairman. He was at Trump Tower. He's got, you know, his hand in every oligarch's pocket. Uh, and he's, you know, a business partner with a former Russian intelligence guy, Konstantin Kalimnik. And oh, by the way, he was, uh, you know, he's, in a cooperative posture now, that's a really big deal and that's really bad news for the president. And I – like on its own, I, I would tend to read it that way. Uh, the problem is that if that if, – if you were moving towards some culminating collusion side action, you would not expect that to be the very moment that Bob Mueller says, OK, I'm ready to go to sentencing with Mike Flynn because you'd presumably want Mike Flynn around for any kind of trial testimony, right? You go to sentencing kind of when the cooperation is essentially complete. And so I do think the Flynn being – Mueller's being willing to go to sentencing with Flynn tends to cut in the opposite direction from – the Manafort uh, agreement. Because you then, think it means it signals that he's he's got what he needs from Flynn. Yeah. So I, the I, scope I, of the investigation is not widening. Well, I, I, I don't know, but I, but, I, but I do think if you're reading tea leaves, you got to read all of the tea okay. leaves and, the, and that one. And then and we I we should think, note he gets sentenced on December 18th, by the way. Correct. And then I think that the uh, last chapter of Bob Woodward's book, which I read over the weekend, uh, actually has some – Pretty interesting material in it. It's uh, quite clear that John Dowd was the was the principal source for it, or maybe the only source for it. Uh, so you're you're you are dealing with that bias. On the other hand, it describes a set of interactions between the special counsel's office and the president's lawyers that seemed overwhelmingly focused on obstruction issues, not on collusion issues. And so when I put those th- three things together and, and, and an environment – and again, I don't take the president's lawyers all that seriously – but an environment in which they seemed to think that their concern lay principally in the obstruction arena. And so when you put those three things together, uh, I don't know what to make of it. It does not look to me like the signals are – all in the direction of this is a mounting wave on the collusion side that's getting ready to crash over the president. Uh, on the other hand, it does look like Roger Stone's got a pretty serious problem. And Manafort, 
There's no question that the special counsel's office is going to get to know what Manafort knows. And so I, I think it's a, it's a big set of question marks. And I, and beyond noting what the data points are, I'm not sure I'm prepared to sort of, you know, give a read of what it all means. So one thing I do think is interesting is this kind of proves the the idea that this 60-day rule by which Robert Mueller was going to sit on his hands and do absolutely nothing is pretty plainly false, right? We we talked about the idea that, that Mueller was going to view the entire special counsel's investigation as falling within this rule. It's being a little bit far-fetched, and I think that this is evidence. You know, we're going to keep seeing things right up, you know, through the midterm. Um, you know, look, I think... The big question here, which is the big question with every single plan cooperation agreement, is what does Paul Manafort actually know? So Paul Manafort is an inherently pretty interesting figure here, in part because we know that he's present at a series of meetings, right? We know that he's present at the Trump Tower meeting. We know that he's a senior member of the campaign. He's also interesting because we've seen a lot on sort of the U.S. side, right? What did various actors within the campaign do? We've seen what has happened on the on the Russian side, right? Sort of predominantly through these um, through these various indictments of GRU officers and others, sort of on the Russian side. But Paul Manafort is one of the relatively few figu- figures that actually exists at the nexus of the two things. So, to the extent that this actually does represent some kind of grand conspiracy in the true sense of the word. Paul Manafort is as plausible a figure as anyone to have relevant information there. You know, that said, he also might not know anything or he, you know, he might know lots of things that are uh, incriminating about all kinds of people, but basically nothing about sort of the actual, you know, what the president actually did or, or, you know, whether or not this sort of collusion conspiracy, there actually is any connection here. Um, I do think sort of the pardon interaction question is interesting. Um, you know, Josh Gerstein in Politico wrote an article that um, I've sort of been puzzling over for the past couple of days because it really doesn't make much sense to me. Um, but it was sort of uh, suggesting the argument that Mueller had structured the Manafort plea to sort of pardon proof it, right? That he set a series of conditions where Mueller, uh, where Manafort had to agree to civil forfeiture, even if there was no criminal conviction. He had to agree to uh, to particular types of cooperation, uh, you know, even after everything was sort of wiped away. Um, this was uh, you know, sort of responded to by by the legal experts or, or I guess critics quoted in this piece as um, being some kind of an attempt to impede, uh, you know, the president's uh, constitutional power to pardon people. To me, I I guess it didn't make a ton of sense because he could pardon the other crimes, right? So the fact that, you know, that Mueller, uh, Manafort, God, Mueller, Manafort, we need less M's. Um, The fact that Manafort could... More F's. Fewer M's, more F's. Um, You know, the fact that Manafort could be charged with other crimes if he violates the cooperation agreement. You know, well, Trump could pardon those crimes. And so this is one thing that, you know, Ben, you and I talked about at the time. I do still think that there's the capacity for Trump to cause a lot of mischief here by using the pardon power and, and, you know, We'll have to see how that plays out and and sort of the political factors that might shape that question. I do think the ultimate question, though, is, is this sort of moving towards wrapping up? Um, I did notice, that I'm surprised it didn't sort of get more pickup and play, um, that Jim Comey actually gave an interview um, with St. Louis Public Radio where he said, you know, there's, um, there is a good argument that this, the Manafort cooperation is evidence that we're in the fourth quarter here. So this idea that, 
we're coming to the culmination of something. I continue to believe it is almost impossible to imagine Mueller closing this investigation, however he decides to do so, without an interview of the president himself. But whenever we talk about we're getting to the fourth quarter, that suggests there's an end game. That suggests that we're building up to something. And I still sort of reading the tea leaves or looking at the pieces it's not quite clear to me what it is that that we actually are building up to here. Yeah, well, I think that also gets to the point you made that we don't know what Manafort knows and with what specificity. We don't know if the story he has to tell is a story about specifics uh, and details about the campaign's interaction with Russians or the government of Russia, or whether the story he has to tell is more context related to that relationship because he has a lot of his own experience and insight uh, with r- the Russian government and Russians, uh, and he can sort of add context and color for whatever Uh, Mueller already knows. And we just don't know which of those is the case. What I think is interesting about this juxtaposition, although I don't think that the timing um, was necessarily intended to send a message or anything, but if you think about these two men, Paul Manafort and Mike Flynn, in the context of their relationship with the campaign and their relationship with the president, these are two guys who both are going down because they had their own side gigs, right? <laughs> that they were pursuing sort of regardless of the interests of their principal, who was candidate and then president-elect and then President Trump. Um, but they uh, they had very different relationships in the sense of how President Trump views them, how he close to them he feels, how he's spoken about them. From the very beginning, he's expressed A lot of anger at Flynn's getting wrapped up in this, you know, a lot of support for Flynn, whereas Manafort, he's tried to distance himself. Except recently where he's expressed a lot of admiration for Manafort and sympathy for him and how brave he was not to break. Right. But of course, you know, events proved him. Um, proved that worthless in terms of an investment in Manafort's loyalty, right? Which I think tells us that the relationship between the two actually has always been tenuous. Um, Manafort was involved with the campaign for a relatively brief period. He clearly went, based on what we do know, he went into it for his own very selfish reasons and came out of it, you know, when he was no longer uh, of much use. Whereas Mike Flynn hung around with candidate Trump through the whole campaign, flew around the country with him, was his buddy buddy. Um, And so I really wonder, as these two processes kind of roll forward, um, both like how much each of these guys really has to give about the president and his role. And secondly, what each of them really expects from the president. I I do think that the one thing that they are in a position to know is we have a number of actors very close to the president, his son, his son-in-law, who have made statements either under oath or to investigators. And Paul Manafort and Mike Flynn are in a position to credibly falsify those claims. And so to the extent that the real pressure points here are going to come in the form of false statements charges, I do think that's a place in which sort of apart from the substantive, you know, the, you know, this is the cover up is the is the crime kind of uh, on that sort of theory, they may be really powerful cooperators on that narrow question, which then opens up, uh, you know, a much bigger uh, sort of pressure point on the 
substantive underlying offenses. And even beyond the uh, that narrow false statements question, uh, you know, one possibility is that there are significant targets or subjects of this investigation who are not the president. I mean, if you look at the aggregate output of the Mueller investigation so far, it is focused on overseas actors who interfered in the U.S. election, uh, either through social media or through uh, hacking. Uh, and there's always been this question ho- hovering over it about at what point, if any, it will cross the Atlantic and go to U.S. people who engaged with that action. And, you know, so one possibility is to take Mueller's prior activity as the best indicator of his future activity, that fundamentally what this is is a counterintelligence and spin-off criminal investigation of the attempt to interfere in the U.S. election and that, you know, Manafort may have very significant help to give on that, just not against the president. Yeah. And I think just to return to this point of collusion and conspiracy for a second, because it's, it's the one that I pay the most attention to in my reporting. I think I'm with you, Ben, on your on your first point that based on what we're seeing, I don't get the sense that this is necessarily building towards some big indictment on conspiracy and you know and ultimately the the president's no collusion standard, you know, maybe effectively met politically. But the one thing that gives me pause on all this is that with every guilty plea or every indictment that comes, there seems to always be this surprise element that we just didn't know. And what I've I think I've just sort of resigned myself to as a journalist and an observer of this is that if there is evidence of conspiracy, it's something that basically no one except the investigators and the parties know. And it just hasn't gotten out or we haven't found it yet. And, you know, I I tend to think probably it won't materialize because by now something would have come out. But there is sort of always that kind of element, I guess, of staying humble and thinking, you know, they may have something in the back pocket that is just kind of a, you know, the thing that brings the house of cards down. Maybe I'm not. I mean, I'm just. I'm. I'm just leaving open that possibility. But uh, it doesn't. Reading the tea leaves, I would probably not bet on it. So the. I, so I agree with that. I do think there is this one uh, event that at which the collusion investigation and the uh, obstruction investigation meet. And that is the uh, events in the summer of 2017 around the revelation of the Trump Tower meeting. And the we know that Mueller's people were acutely interested in the role of the president himself in dictating the statement uh, uh, to Don Jr. about the Trump Tower meeting. And that is a, a really interesting crossroads of the two investigations because they're, they, it's it's not a collusion investigation exactly, but it's an investigation. It, it's 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 an investigation of the president's specific behavior when issues of collusion or whatever engagement started to come to light uh, while he was president. And so I I do think that is an area where we probably have more to learn. Man. This Netflix series just has so many twists and turns. I cannot keep up. <laughs> I'm watching Ozark, by the way, and just delighted. Never seen it. Okay, that's not a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> my God. My segue is downstairs in the garage. <laughs> well, we are going to talk now about TV networks for a second. All right. There you go. There's a good segue. Uh, so the Justice Department has ordered that two Chinese media companies register in the United States under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Uh, I'll just read from the, my friends over at the Wall Street Journal who I believe did they broke this story. Uh, DOJ in recent weeks told Xinhua News Agency and China Global Television Network, which is earlier known as CCTV, you might have heard of it, uh, under that name, to register under FARA. Prosecutors have recently scrutinized the U.S. activity of a number of foreign media groups after U.S. intelligence described two Russian government-backed outlets as participants in the Kremlin's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. Chinese state media so far hasn't been accused of such activity. Generally, the outlets exalt China while criticizing the U.S. and others. So this is not – now, the, 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 the Russian registrations kind of did fall into this – collusion slash interference bucket, well, not collusion, but direct interference in the election bucket that's very germane to the Mueller probe. This is something different where these are just sort of clearly state organs that are operating effectively as agents for the government, but aren't necessarily doing it as part of some sort of conspiracy or criminal activities to subvert our elections. But Susan, and you guys had a great piece in Lawfare about this, I think, last week that it does seem like the Justice Department is now picking up FARA and using it as a real enforcement tool, which I think probably strikes a lot of lobbyists and, and journalists who covered lobbying as quite a turn of events because, I mean, for a long time, I think it's fair to say this, this the enforcement of this law was considered kind of a joke and was quite anemic at the Justice Department. But this seems to signal that They've got this tool in the toolkit now, and they're really going to use it to go after some, n- not just individual lobbyists, but uh, big media institutions. Yeah, so I think there's a few sort of separate issues to try and understand what's going on here. First is enforcement, um, the application of FARA to um, to press and media outlets. Um, so this is something that has always been controversial because the question was, um, one, was this going to spark retaliation against U.S. media outlets abroad? It it has and likely will. Um, And also, was this sort of a a form of censorship? So if not sort of a violation of of the First Amendment, just generally not in keeping with sort of U.S. values uh, of a free press. Um, I've been trying to pull up the the code provision. I I can't remember the like the precise details, but essentially um, uh, media, the the FARA does not apply to media uh, or press unless there is, I think it's more than 50 percent ownership by a foreign government, right? So FARA generally applies to anyone who's working for both a foreign government and also foreign commercial interests of, of particular types and engages in uh, in political or quasi-political activity within the United States. They set sort of a higher bar for uh, uh, for application to the press. And, and that's uh, that's because FARA is fundamentally or originally an anti-propaganda law. It's, it's a law designed to avoid sort of covert foreign influence desi- designed to, uh, you know, manipulate the, the U.S. public. And the idea is you aren't going to prevent the activity. You aren't going to prevent the information. What you're going to ensure is that there is a warning, right, just like those campaign warnings so that people have sort of sufficient context in order to understand what's going on. Um, so so I think you have to sort of think about the application of FARA to the press as sort of one difficult policy legal question. 
The second question is the sort of the larger trend of, of really revolutionizing uh, uh, FARA enforcement generally or, or revitalizing it. Um, I think a lot of people are assuming this has something to do with Paul Manafort. It almost certainly doesn't. Um, so in 2015, I think is the date of this. No, so it comes out in September 2016. Uh, it was almost certainly initiated in early uh, in early 2016. The Inspector General of the Justice Department issued a report about fair enforcement. And this report essentially says, we have this law, we have a unit dedicated to enforcing FARA. It's, it's sort of, it's understaffed. Um, not only is there, there's sort of um, uneven enforcement of the statute, FBI agents and uh, prosecutors within the National Security Division of DOJ are confused about what it means. What is FARA? What falls within another section called Section 951, which is known as sort of espionage light? Does DOJ actually want this enforced as a civil matter or a criminal matter? So uh, essentially, since kind of, you know, the, the early 1980s, the way that the department has enforced FARA is whenever they find someone who they believe is not complying with the registration requirement, they send them a letter and they say, we believe you have to comply with FARA. And then the person says, whoops, and they they do their registration and it's all fine and good. And maybe they they sort of pay a little fine. So FARA has always been there. There's always been sort of enforcement of FARA. But there was no penalty, right? And so some of the statistics that this IG report um, uh, came up with was because there's no penalty, 60% of FARA registrations were late. 50% of FARA, FARA registrants had to do a supplemental filing, which was late, right? So like this was – it was sort of a joke. And so it wasn't that no one knew that this law existed. It's that they thought they weren't really going to get in trouble for it. And so they didn't bother doing it. Um, and so I I do think that this is a huge, this is probably sending an enormous chill throughout Washington, D.C., um, because there are a lot of people that engage in activity that is likely covered by FARA. Uh, it, there are um, di- sort of uh, complex interactions with, um, there's an exemption for legal representation unless you advise on lobbying. So that's a gray area, how it interacts with the Lobbying Disclosure Act, right? It's, it's all sort of this really complex thing. But the problem is nobody cared about it for a really long time while engaging this activity. And now there there are a lot of law firm partners. There are a lot of K Street lobbyists that are thinking, oh, shoot, in keeping with the non-excletives of of this edition, um, I I might be facing serious criminal liability right now. And, And DOJ in this IG report essentially says the counterintelligence division believes this is a powerful counterintelligence tool, and we intend to use it moving forward. So I think that um, it, it's very important to, as Susan did, to point out the laxness of fair enforcement all these years. And you know, as somebody who over the years has gone into the database of fair filings um, for research purposes, you can see a lot of these forms are handwritten. They're submitted, you know, months or sometimes years after the activity that they're describing. And often it's like really non-descriptive too. They're sometimes extremely vague. Um, and that hasn't been a big deal. Uh but I, I, I guess what I would say is I'm sympathetic to the intent of the Justice Department in trying to firm up enforcement here because they are dealing with um, asymmetric challenges from major global competitors that they lack a lot of tools uh, to confront. 
And Pharaoh, although it's a vague statute and incredibly broad, is a tool that they can wield in this moment when they're under a where they see a national security need and they're under a lot of pressure to demonstrate that they are working harder against the kind of disinformation activity that we've seen from Russia and from China. And I would say, you know, also from others that maybe don't have as much practical impact in the United States like Iran, um, but are certainly worth focusing on. I think, though, that if they really intend to deploy this tool, there are two, at least two things they need to do. One is, for all the reasons Susan just noted, they need to clarify, you know, who's really being targeted here and why, so that all of these PR firms and law firms aren't freaking out um, unless, you know, they're engaged in something that they should be freaking out about, in which case they probably shouldn't be doing in the first place. Um, but the other reason is that FARA gets used in America's engagement with governments, particularly authoritarian governments abroad, but not exclusively authoritarian governments. It gets used as a club against our own diplomacy on behalf of freedom of association, on behalf of freedom of speech. It is constantly cited um, as well. The reason we have a law that restricts NGOs from registering in our country or that restricts your American uh, USAID implementing partners from working in our country, well, our law is just like your FARA. This is a constant refrain uh, of governments abroad where you know the U.S. is trying to help these societies open up and trying to interact with society outside of the government-to-government channel, and these other laws are used as a block. Now, I can say, till I'm blue in the face, it's not a parallel to FARA. Your civil society law is actually constraining people from working in your society. FARA is just a transparency mechanism. But even if their law is just a transparency mechanism in an authoritarian context, it's not, it's not just transparency. It also ends up being a tool for repression. So I, I think that if the U.S. government as a whole wants to come up with a more effective set of policy responses to these asymmetric threats, and we need to do that, um, we need to look hard at the statutes that we have available. Maybe Congress needs to get on developing a more modern, more focused Fera type statute. You know, this thing dates back to what, the 1940s? I think 1939. 30s. Yeah. And, you know, the information environment's changed. The nature of the actors has changed. And I, I really think that this is just an ill-suited tool. A couple quick things. Uh, first of all, you know, the application of Farah to government-owned or sponsored media entities is actually a no-brainer. And, uh, you know, it's uh, well-precedented uh, in the Soviet era, so, uh, Soviet media, Pravda, Izvestia, and, and you know, those, those people based here were all, I believe, registered. And so, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't actually raise First Amendment issues, in my view, because foreign governments don't have First Amendment rights. Um, you know, they have the ability to say whatever they want, but it, it doesn't really present the same set of issues. You know, one of the – on the broader point that the expansion of enforcement and the uh, in, insistence on enforcement, this is going to have two really important effects, one of them an unqualified good and the other one complicated. So the unqualified good is that, you know, both Shane and Tamara have mentioned uh, having looked at FARA filings. 
We are entering the golden age of FARA filings. And to, to all <laughs> Everybody is going to be filing a dissertation on so, this. Seriously. seriously. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, right. every, there are going to be many more of them, yeah. and they're going to be much more detailed. And so to any journalist listening, keep an eye on, on FARA filings. This is, gonna, this is becoming a very rich source of information. It's, it's going to get richer. And here's the one that's a little bit more complicated. There are these edge cases in Farah, and they're all going to end up getting litigated. So the the famous edge case is uh, APAC, right, where there was actually a criminal litigation uh, about the behavior of two APAC senior officials some years ago. The FBI has uh, long had a bee in its bonnet about APAC's refusal to register under FARA. APAC has taken the position that it is not, it does not represent the Israeli government. It represents Americans who are pro-Israel and therefore it doesn't have to register. That's the sort of famous historic edge case. But there are a million other edge cases of law firms, uh, trade associations, uh, individuals who are consultants of one sort or another. And all of these people are going to have hard decisions to make about whether to register and what kind of information to provide. And uh, some of those people are going to decide not to register in fashions that are going to provoke uh, attempts to enforce. And th- those are going to be really interesting, particularly in the absence of congressional action to uh, clarify the obligations under FARA. Those are going to be uh, uh, really interesting problems to watch how they get resolved and what the standards that emerge look like. So I do think it's worth um, pointing out why people might not want to register. So I, I think a lot of people think, well, we'll just register. And oh, maybe people don't want to admit that they're working for a foreign government. It's because the um, the disclosure requirements are twofold. It's not just what your, where your funding sources are from. It's who you meet with within the United States. Right. So every member of Congress you sit down with, every U.S. government official you sit down with, individuals registered under the LGA that you might uh, interact with. And so um, what people are really concerned about and the reason why people don't want to register whenever you think, well, how big of a deal could it possibly be? And this is true also as applied to media. You know, um, RT, uh, you know, everybody knows that they're funded by the Russian government. That's not new information. By forcing them to register, it forces them to disclose who they are interacting with within the United States. And so that, you know, sort of the the uh, rich information that comes out of the database and also the thing that, that people are substantively trying to hide because you know it can it can be consequential is this second sort of step of disclosure. Well, speaking of unregistered foreign agents, Carter Page. <laughs> good segment. That was good. Yeah. Did not register. Agent under of Farrah. a foreign power versus agent of a foreign principal. <laughs> mm. Well, he has foreign principles, all right. See, that's a schoolhouse rock video waiting to be made. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Trump has taken the step to declassify more of the FISA uh, application to conduct uh, surveillance on Carter Page uh, based on his links to Russia. Um, <clears throat> he is also ordering, uh, I think, interviews that were conducted pursuant to the application for the FISA warrant as well as text messages yep. sent among FBI officials including Jim Comey. To be declassified. It's not clear that the entire FISA application or just selective portions of it will be declassified after selective portions of it were already declassified uh, and many of them were heavily redacted. Um, but uh, 
Ben, kind of put this in, in context for us. I mean, this seems like in some ways more of the same insofar as Republicans have been pushing to expose parts of the process and the paperwork around the Carter Page warrant to somehow prove that it depended utterly or in significant measure on the Steele dossier and therefore is the sort of the fruit of the poisonous tree or the original sin of the Russia investigation and therefore the whole thing is corrupt. It's this kind of narrative string that we've seen Devin Nunes and Mark Meadows and others trying to play out. Um, and we have seen orders to push and declassify coming from the White House. That's caused huge upset. We've talked about on the podcast before. Is this more of the same or is there something qualitatively different about what the president has done in this case in ordering these materials to be declassified? Yes, it is more of the same and it, it is qualitatively different. So more of the same in exactly the sense that you just said that – uh, you know, the president, uh, we need to talk about Devin Nunes and Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan have been pushing for uh, a lot of this stuff, uh, a lot of disclosure of this material for a long time. And the president has consistently backed them at the expense of U.S. intelligence sources, at the expense of uh, the investigative needs of an ongoing investigation. And this is another example of that. So in that sense, it is quite consistent. Uh, the sense in which it is not consistent, that is kind of qualitatively different, is right, – so this is a document that has already gone through a declassification review. And the agency, the Justice Department leaned – under the president's pressure and direction, very far forward in declassifying material and redacted material that it thought it could not release consistent with the investigative needs. And here the president is saying, now undo the redactions. So I think that is a, a little bit um, of a confusion. So it has undergone classification review in the first instance. Classified material was redacted and non-classified material was released. This, we, it's not clear what the order does, but this would be for it to, uh, to do a declassification review, which is a different type of review where they look at the classified information, information that the government just a few weeks ago determined could not be safely released. And now they're going to decide or or maybe the president has ordered them, it's not entirely clear to me whether or not that information. So it's it's similar, but it is a slightly different set of equities that they're looking at. Yeah. So And, and so I, I think – and then the ordering the wholesale release of employee text messages strikes me as uh, really without precedent in the history of the country. I mean – um, particularly, uh, you know, Jim Comey is a big boy and, uh, but Bruce Orr and current staff, uh, at career levels in the Justice Department, that is a, you know, a particularly egregious, uh, step. And then finally, the ordering the release of, uh, you know, the memoranda, specific memoranda of interviews in an ongoing investigation of a career official at justice who, you know, as best I can tell, is not accused of doing anything more than trying to connect a source with the Bureau on a matter of national security, potential national security interest. Um, 
it strikes me as pretty unforgivable. And so I, I do think the answer is kind of more of the same and qualitatively different. So I think it's um, sort of I think that the interviews uh, uh, documents the the 302 materials are actually the most potentially dangerous or consequential, right? So it is entirely conceivable, if not even likely, that these interviews would describe, for example, uh, the nature of the relationship of a source with Vladimir Putin. Right. These are that's the kind of thing that these that these interviews might be uh, might be describing. So we really are talking about highly sensitive, highly, uh, you know, consequential information. You know, look, I, I like I, I don't even know how to do anything but just rant about this. Like it is so unbelievably egregious. And, and I agree with Ben. It's more of the same and something completely different. But it, it, but it is such a stark and striking example that it, it, and it's engendering so little pushback that I, I think it is sort of of its own. You know, the first is like Trump obviously has the authority to do this. He plainly is within his power. Um, I, I do think there is some question about whether or not he can release these text messages or DOJ can do so under the Privacy Act, although that is um, that is not necessarily clear. But the decision to release classified material or to declassify material is a really difficult one. It uh, You have to basically predict consequences where you don't always know what they might be. You have to weigh them against uh, important public interests. Uh, you have to de-conflict across different agencies. You, you might not necessarily know what the impact would be at NSA, know what the impact would be at CIA. Um, and and these, are, these are hard calls. They're supposed to be being made in the national interest, right? Sometimes it is the right thing for the United States of America to declassify information. We clearly have a class of, an overclassification issue in general, although there's absolutely no reason to believe that's an issue in these particular set of uh, for these particular set of information. Donald Trump is declassifying this information in his own personal interest, and plainly in his own personal interest. There is no argument even on the face that this is about somehow bolstering the national security of the United States. He's saying it's to refute this narrative or to or to sort of lend credence to sort of this conspiratorial view. What's more, Trump has admitted he didn't even read the documents. He's discharging this unbelievably important national security authority vested in the president of the United States. He said he did so, one, because Lou Dobbs and Sean Hannity asked him to. And Jeanine Pirro. And Jeanine Pirro. Well, I guess it's the, if it's the three of them, that kind of brain I mean, trust. It, it, it acquires the, a certain gravity when Pirro comes in. You know, I mean, one, the notion that those people are dictating, you know, sort of uh, what the president of the United States is doing on national security matters. Um, you know, but two, that he doesn't even care about this responsibility, despite being the president who pounds the table and talks about building a wall and securing the nation and, you know, and his travel ban and all this other nonsense. Whenever it comes to where the rubber meets the road on national security, information, the ability to collect the information moving forward, the guy can't even bother to pick up the piece of paper and he is willing to compromise something. And it is not an overstatement. Compromise something that could risk someone's life. And and that's not fear mongering and we don't actually know what the information is, but that is entirely plausible, entirely conceivable. And he's doing it for a set of headlines. And, and I just think it is worth pausing on what exactly that means and what it means that we have 
we're almost so numb to it that, that really we just kind of see even Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department kind of, you know, shrugging or, or, or not, not seeing the kind of just overwhelming pushback we would expect. I think that there are a few broader contextual things that come out of that fantastic analysis. One is that just as we've discussed in prior episodes, the failure of the Justice Department to draw a bright red line at the very beginning of these demands from the White House uh, and the failure of Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein to draw that line and, and be willing to enforce that line is what led us here in all the ways that we predicted it might, right? If you give a mouse a cookie. If you give a mouse a cookie, right? Uh, and, and and what could be a better analogy for Donald Trump? Um, so there's there is that dimension. There is, I think, in some ways, it's even worse than Trump make you know issuing this order uh, in order to uh, get information out that he believes is in his personal interest. Because, as you said, he doesn't even know what's in these documents and. Um, some people with greater knowledge of what's in these documents have suggested, like, be careful what you wish for, President Trump. There's going to be a lot in there. It's going to be messy and contradictory. And therefore, I think it's quite similar, actually, to his previous um, demands to get this information out, which is it's just about throwing dust in the air. It is not actually about some clear message that he thinks is going to come out of this. It is just about confusing people and making the picture look harder to read and therefore better for him because that allows his political allies like Lou Dobbs and <laughs> Judge Janine to construct an alternative narrative with whatever chaff uh, comes out of this. So in a way, it's even worse, I think, Susan, than, than the purpose that you were describing. He cares so little uh, that it almost doesn't matter what's in these documents. Um, I do think that there's another dimension that relates. We've talked about the implications of this kind of politically motivated declassification for sources who are willing to come forward and help the United States government in intelligence investigations. But I think there's another implication here when we get to Bruce Orr and the texts and things like that. These are government officials. They're civil servants who bust their butts, okay? They're at the office way more than 40 hours a week, and they live on their phones. And, you know, I know because I had a very small taste of this, and Susan, you did as well. And, you know, these texts probably include a middle school daughter texting dad to say, my boyfriend just broke up with me. These texts include all kinds of things. And part of what we ask these people to do when they go into not just government service, but this type of government service, is that they do sign away a tremendous amount of their own personal privacy and their own personal freedom in order to serve the national security interests of the United States. And there's an expectation that 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 faith that they are willing to place in the U.S. government will be reciprocated with a little bit of respect for that privacy. And instead, it's being reciprocated in this case with a horrific abuse of power to erode and effectively destroy that privacy. And so I worry that this is going to have a really significant impact on people who might think about entering into government service in these national security roles. Like, who would want to do this? 
It's not just my credit card data or my Rolodex now that gets hacked by the Chinese on an OPM website. It's now every text I send. You're doxed by the president. Right. It gives your stuff to Lou Dobbs. Um, yeah. Two small things. Uh, first of all, it's a very unfair comparison to the mouse in If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. <laughs> The mouse is demanding and needy, but he's polite and nice. He, More of a, if you give a moose a muffin. It, it's really if, if, if you give an asshole an inch. <laughs> you know? and I just, Damn it, Ben! <laughs> oh, sorry. We were so close. We were so close. <laughs> oh, well, fuck it. Well, <laughs> shit. <laughs> All right, second thing. Um, the you observant know, listener will see the E already on it and be like, well, when, when does it finally happen? <laughs> How many minutes in? We made it pretty far. Yeah. I'm proud of us. <laughs> so Susan began her uh, incredibly eloquent rant um, by saying that she had no doubt that this was within the president's power. And that is correct. But I also want to say that, at least speaking for myself, I, I think it is unambiguously an impeachable offense. That if you if you take everything that was said just now by Susan and Tamara, the malicious, self-interested, you know, to to serve oneself in in a PR context and uh, and uh, for headline purposes, the malicious release of information you haven't even troubled been troubled yourself to review that causes enormous damage to U.S. national security and injures individuals. If he actually went through and released this and caused and risked the death of sources and to, in order to slime individuals by way of uh, getting some good headlines from Judge Janine, I, I would think, you know, this is almost the prototypical example to me of something that is not criminal. Your, your article two gives you the authority to do it. And yet, if a, re a reasonable congressman looking at this said, uh, I don't think a person who does that should be president, I consider that a high crime and misdemeanor, I would, I would, that is how I would feel about it if I were a member of Congress. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I will go first. We have a very exciting object. It's kind so of like exciting. On, it's like on behalf of the whole podcast, my object, we have a new logo. For the show, which you're going to see, uh, you'll see it already in the podcast feed, uh, and you'll see it showing up on social media. Um, but I'm very excited about this, and also very happy to say it is designed by one Joe DeFeo, who happens to be my husband. Your super talented husband. Very talented. What can't he do, really? He, I mean, he can make mar perfect martini art, and design and, and your decorating, and paints, putting up with Shane. And he, yeah. Yeah. And he paints <laughs> amazing zombies. He paints zombies. This is incredible. Um, we're very, very happy with the logo. And thank you, Thank Joe. you, Joe. Thanks, it Joe. It was great. And, we, I, and I, I should note, by the way, all of that in there is freehand. He drew all that. These are not elements whoa, that he grabbed. Wow. Everything you see, the eagle's talon, the feathers, the microphone. All his true handiwork. The hand of Joe. Yeah, it's very good. So we're very lucky to have it. Uh, and thanks, babe. Okay. Uh, my object is a sentimental one. It doesn't actually have anything to do with national security, except in the most attenuated sense, which is the sense being that um, I spent a couple of days earlier this week at a conference uh, about uh, Israel at 70, Israeli politics, security, 
diplomacy and science and agriculture and a bunch of other things at Michigan State University. Michigan State University happens to be in my very own hometown of East Lansing, Michigan, um, where I hadn't been in a while. And uh, because it was a sentimental visit back home and because I don't have any family left there to visit, I wandered around the downtown where I was amazed and delighted to find that my favorite old used record store from high school was not only still in business, it was in the same location (laughs) and probably had the same guys behind the desk. I'm not sure. Uh, And it turns out that this record store celebrated its 40th anniversary last year and issued some very cool T-shirts. So my object is my hot purple flat black and circular 40th anniversary (laughs) T-shirt. Flat, flat back and black and circular is, is the store, which yep. is a great name. That's for good. Yeah. Which, which for those uh, podcast listeners who don't know, that's a record. <laughs> you put it that's on a, a vinyl turntable, album. It spins around. You put this needle on it. It's amazing. <gasps> All right, um, Susan. I have one. Um, so my object is uh, Greg Miller's new book, The Apprentice, um, which has just been released, one of um, Shane's colleagues at the Washington Post, um, that's sort of the story of uh, Russian election interference in the 2016 election, um, uh, and really looks to be one of the most deeply reported and um, interesting accounts. Um, so I, I have ordered it and looking forward to reading it. Um, but one sort of anecdote in particular that the Washington Post excerpt um, that really I, I think is so astounding, and that's that uh, after Donald Trump uh, on the first day after his inauguration gives this um, really pretty disturbing um, speech at at Langley in front of the memorial wall, uh, a speech that was bizarre for its own reasons, but but also bizarre because of uh, because of the setting and sort of the lack of uh, uh, sanctity and reverence with which uh, Trump uh, viewed that particular sacrifice. And uh, this Miller book reports that uh, in the days after this sort of this bizarre speech as everyone's trying to come to grips with the new president of the United States and what it means, um, flowers started appearing at the base of the memorial wall, which is usually something that people only do after a tragedy and whenever a CIA officer has been killed. Um, and I just think that is such a beautiful, quiet act of civil disobedience. And, and for people who are, you know, even in those moments, we're facing, you know, this question of what does their work mean? in this context and, and sort of this, this highly emotional environment and when they really are constrained and, and they do serve the president and their commitment to serve the nation. I, I just think the notion of sort of reconsecrating that space in, in a quiet way and, and sort of supporting and honoring your colleagues um, was just such a, a beautiful gesture. And um, yeah, that's that's my object. Yeah, I thought also that, that was just such a vivid anecdote. And uh, yeah, it's a, it, it, Greg did a great job on the book. So congrats to him. I think it's going to be an awesome read. Can't wait. Yeah. Already pre-ordered it. Very o- good. On both in both hardcover and Audible. Right. Nice. Did you take advantage that they can do that? You can do these Audible. deals now. I I, I do because because you know Susan and I are writing uh, this this book, and so I I need to be reading while I'm walking down the street. Yep. And have something to you know book to annotate. So I, both with this and Woodward, I have both. Hard and and listenable copies. Joe, by the way, is also listening to the Woodward book and commented that he's like, this is probably the most profane audio book I've ever heard <laughs> because the president's dropping F-bombs like in every quote. 
Oh, well. And, you know, and we almost made it through the end of this fucking podcast without doing the same. <laughs> but that does bring us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find us on the Lawfare page, the bloggy Wherever the hell Lawfare that is. Blog. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, or soon you'll see our new logo there, too. You can find us on Facebook. You can – where else can they find us? Facebook, Twitters. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Roaming the Stitcher. streets of Washington, Roaming the streets, Stitcher. On a Segway. Whenever you run into us, please do leave us a review and a rating. We appreciate it. I was don't, actually don't reading. Don't run into us like with a car. <laughs> oh, no, though. not that way. Whenever you encounter us yeah. in your podcatching mechanism of. By the way, Segway is putting out roller skates. What? Yeah, they're putting out. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna, bu- I'm gonna buy some for Matt. This is so dangerous. Because Matt, Matt is uh, saw them. You know, he's the Matt is our, our audio engineer is the only person who doesn't make fun of my Segway, who likes my Segway, and he's he was so excited that they're putting out uh, roller skates. Uh, that uh, yeah. gyroscopic roller skates. Yeah, no, like you like can't you lean fall over. In them? You you just lean. You go in whatever direction you want to go, and they just go. What Whoa. need does this serve? <laughs> that does sound like fun. I gotta admit, <laughs> serving your inner thirteen-year-old nineteen-seventies girl. Yeah, <laughs> but but can those skates do di- roller disco? That's yeah, the real. Question. That's the real question. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn, as you know. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn's new Beatles cover band with their debut single, Please Plead Me. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, think I so. like I like the uh the, the twist on this of of adding the name of the song. You like that? I've been doing yeah. more of yeah. that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think it's time to expand the repertoire, as it were. I yeah. think we should start imagining what these bands would be playing. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Let's spin off and do a whole podcast <laughs> just with the music. Just lean into it. And maybe Sophia Yang can do, like, you know, cover intros of, uh, of songs. Sophia Yang, who's going to be in town soon, and I think we should have do a – a live performance to interrupt and introduce rational security. Nice. Let us know, Sophia. On behalf of my good friends, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, Benjamin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 